Hello, this is Lily Frost with Just World Books, bringing you the third podcast in our revived podcast series. If you are interested in learning more about our podcasts, books, events, and news, you can find us at www.justworldbooks.com. Again, that is www.justworldbooks.com. Last week, I had the pleasure of speaking with U.S. Army Captain Matt Zeller, author of Watches Without Time, An American Soldier in Afghanistan. In 2008, Matt Zeller served as an embedded combat advisor with the Afghan Security Forces in Ghazni, Afghanistan. Watches Without Time is a compilation of the emails and letters he sent home to family and friends during that period so that, should anything have ever happened to him, they would know what he was going through. When I spoke with Matt, he talked about the highlights from his recent college speaking tour across the country and discussed his key lessons learned from Afghanistan, some of which came from surprising places. Matt also recognized the 10th anniversary of the Iraq War and discussed what the war in Afghanistan would have looked like if we had never invaded Iraq. He does not think the two wars are comparable, saying it is like comparing apples and goats, but he provided some insightful commentary about how these wars have reignited the issue of veterans' mental health. Matt offers strong criticism of the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, as well as some creative ideas for better serving veterans' needs. Here's how the conversation went. Hi, Matt. It's so great to have caught you today uh, quickly before you go and speak here in Charlottesville, Virginia. We're at Just World Books headquarters, and we have Matt Zeller to sit down with us and chat about some of his opinions on current events. But first, I'd like to talk to Matt about his recent college tour. He's been all across the country over the past few months. That started in Boston at Harvard and Boston University. Then he was over in California at UCLA and Whittier and then in New York uh, at Columbia and Syracuse. So I'd like to ask Matt to you know, reflect on his presentations and, and give us a summary of uh, what he was discussing with the students there. Well, thanks for having me, Lily. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, yeah, I know that the, the, the tour was received extremely well. Uh, every place uh, ended up being a, a really in-depth and, and insightful discussion between the student body and the faculty members and members of the community who came out to the talk and, and myself. I think universally people walked away having taken some of my insights based on my experiences from the war with them, and that was my goal. I, I told all of the students, I said, at some point you're going to be the future leaders of this country, and if there's one thing I'd ask you to take away from this, it's that when you find yourselves in these types of responsibilities in your career, you need to think about lessons from the past that some of them are going to be applicable. For example, if we find ourselves in a future conflict, adequately prepare for that conflict. Adequately resource it. Don't assume that it's just going to end in the way that you deem it's going to end and when you first begin it. Realize that you need to be flexible. But most importantly, learn about the people that you're going to be working with on the planet, what motivates them, what drives them, and see if you can't reach them on a more human level than just outright exerting to force. <laughs> so it was, it was really well received, and it was a lot of fun, and I'd, I'd do it again in a heartbeat. Great, great. And I noticed I read through some of the articles uh, in response to your talks, and they were all really glowing. Uh, the students seemed to really enjoy what you had to say. And I think that one of the overwhelming takeaways that I noticed was how affected students were by your position on literacy and how important that is in the war on terrorism and how important that was when you were in Afghanistan. 
which I'll take the side note to mention. Matt has written a great book, Watches Without Time, An American Soldier in Afghanistan, that uh, shares his reflections from his time in Afghanistan. But going back to the conversation, can you talk a little bit about that importance of literacy and the importance of the future generation in Afghanistan? Sure. My 14th day in country, I was in one of the worst uh, firefights of my life. We had been out trying to assess a, a police station in a remote district in the eastern part of the country along the Pakistan border, and we were lost. The, the maps that we had were actually 20 years old. They hadn't been updated since. Same thing with the satellite imagery that we had provided. So we're, we're driving around with basically geographical data from the, the mid-'80s, you know, completely not relevant. A little relevant. outdated. A little outdated. And, uh, but that's actually, you know, when we talk about the Iraq War, that actually is, it, it was an effect of the Iraq War because by 2008 when I was in Afghanistan, Afghanistan was the forgotten war. So all of the resources had gone to Iraq, and we were left to deal with, for example, 20-year-old maps. That actually had a, a really significant impact on my war experience because when we found ourselves lost, we, we ended up stopping and asking a local farmer <laughs> for directions. And he, he basically pointed around a bend and he said, yeah, you just follow the road, go through the village, and in about three kilometers, you'll hit the main highway to take, back, take you back to your base. What he failed to mention was the Taliban ambush that was raiding around the corner. <laughs> and so we were driving along and our, our lead vehicle hit a, uh, a double-stacked anti-tank mine initiated by an anti-personnel device. And, and it... Thankfully, we're in what is called an MRAP, which are these big armored vehicles designed to take roadside bombs and, and have everybody survive the blast. And the vehicle actually functioned as designed. All the guys inside lived. If, if they had been in an up-armored Hummer, they would have probably all been mm -hmm. killed. But we wanted to basically, at that point, we, we were down to two vehicles, uh, 15 guys, five of whom had concussions and to the point where they didn't even know where they were or how to operate their, their equipment, including their weapons. And uh, what we wanted to do is take a thermite grenade and throw it in the back of the vehicle. And what that does is it burns really hot and it basically melts it down to a big hulking piece of metal. <laughs> it burns all the sensitive items and we can get out of Dodge. And we wanted to do that and we radioed our intention to our, our higher headquarters and, and the battalion commander for the area, the, the, the U.S. Army officer in charge of this whole area, got on the radio and he said, I'm quoting, if you don't come back without that vehicle, don't bother coming back at all. I do not leave monuments to, to our failure like the Soviets. You will remain there until properly relieved out. And he, he stopped talking. So we call that a die-in-place order. We realized we were effectively going to we were gonna get hit at some point. We didn't know how large it would be. It would just be a couple guys harassing us or an actual real significant force. Long story short, about an hour later, the Taliban attacked. We, we found out later through actually a drone overhead in the video feed that it was relaying back. It was 45 of them versus the 15 of us. And I got blown up a couple of times and it, you know, really shook the life I and mean, it just it frightened me even to this day to even think about it but um the battle ended about an hour later with the arrival of some reinforcements from our remote outpost which was the closest u.s position and we didn't expect them to actually come these guys just came on their own volition and my interpreter was with them and he jumped out and ended up saving my life he actually he killed a guy who was who was running up behind me and so after this firefight ends i, I pulled him aside his name's janice uh, j-a-n-u-s it's an afghan male and I said, hey, Janice, thank you so much. You saved my life. I, I can never repay you. Man, I'm really glad you're on our side. You're a hell of a shot. And I said, wait a minute, why are you on our side? You're a, you're a Pashtun male. Most of the Taliban's ethnic makeup are Pashtuns. You're an effective military fighter. I'm not one of your countrymen. I'm a visitor in your country. I'm a guest. But why aren't you, why aren't you on the other side of this thing? And he looked at me and he just said nonchalantly, my mother would have killed me if I joined the Taliban. <laughs> and I said, well, what do you mean by that? He goes, Matt, you know nothing about Afghans. I said, well, teach me. He said, okay, Afghan men can't fight without the blessings of their mothers. 
I said, wait a minute, Janice, are you telling me that every guy who joined the Taliban is like, yeah, had mom's permission to do so? <laughs> and I was like, well, how come your mom is so much more enlightened than their mothers? And he said, well, my mom can read and write, so she can read the Quran for herself, and she knows that what the Taliban preach is a, is a load of crap. It, it, it's not actually what's written in the Quran, and it's not Islam. And so she basically forbid us from ever joining those types of groups. And I said, well, how come... I don't understand. Like, why, why don't other Afghan women grow up like this? He goes, well, the, the Taliban you know, burn girls' schools. This is why they, they actually don't want the women to get educated, is they don't want them to grow up to be literate, to be able to think for themselves, access the marketplace of ideas for themselves, and be able to then turn to their sons and say, like, no, I'm sorry, you're not fighting for the Taliban. You're, you're going to go out and get an education or a trade or, or whatever. So what we did was we started going out to these villages, and, and what we found was that the, the Afghan government will provide a free education for any child that can reach out and touch. What they don't provide those kids with are pens, pencils, pieces of paper, the basic school supplies to go to school. The onus for that is on the Afghan parent. Well, if mom and dad are too poor to afford a pen, and in the United States, I mean, we're, the cost of like a pen is literally like about a two cents, two cent mm -hmm. pen. If mom and dad can't afford a two cent pen, which most Afghan parents can't, they purposely keep their kids home from school because to send your child to school ill-equipped is a sign of a tremendous dishonor on the mm -hmm. family. It shows the, the family's level of poverty. So your mom and dad can't buy you a pen or a pencil, pieces of paper. They literally send you out in the fields to do subsistence farming because most of the population lives in the rural countryside. And then if you're in the cities, you actually go out and you, you know they're street urchins or they work uh, some type of trade. What ends up happening, though, is that the average Afghan parent's life expectancy is about 47. And the average family size in the rural countryside can be anywhere from five or six kids all the way up to 12. And so when dad dies, you, you basically become the responsibility of your father's closest living relative, which is usually one of his brothers, so an uncle of yours, who probably has you know anywhere from five to 12 miles to the feet of his own, can't afford to take care of you in the first place, let alone his own kids, and so you end up getting dropped off at Madrasa. Mm -hmm. where you're indoctrinated into the Taliban's ideology. Not to say that all the madrasas function of that, but a lot of them in the rural countryside do. And women's education in particular stops basically at the point in which the girls have learned the basic tenets of the faith. And the, the education for both the boys and the girls in these madrasas is Quranic. It's just rote memorization of the Quran in Arabic. They're not teaching it to them in Dari and Pashto, and they're certainly not teaching them the ability to read and write it. So as a result, you have an entire generation of both illiterate men and women who grow up, and they're very impressionable because they can't think, they're not able to access the marketplace of ideas independently on their own. So what we started doing was we said, well, why don't we see if we can't bridge the gap? Let's go out and let's hand out school supplies to kids. And at first, my, my soldiers thought it was the stupidest thing in the world. Mm -hmm. I said, well, thankfully, this is not a democracy. It's a dictatorship, and I'm in charge. <laughs> so we're going to hand out pencils because I'm, I'm the officer. And the first village we went out to do this with the most vocal opponent of this, this policy was my medic, Scott. <laughs> Scott thought it was the dumbest thing in the world, and he, he would not shut up about it, to be honest. <laughs> and serendipitously, we get into this village, and this little kid comes running right up to Scott's vehicle as he's getting out. He grabs his left arm, and he tugs on it, and he goes, Mr. Mr., Ponch, ponch, and he makes like a writing motion on his hand. And ponch, ponch means pen, pen in Dari. Janice turns to Scott and he goes, he wants your pen. <laughs> and uh, Scott, Scott turns and he looks at me and he goes, did you put him up to this? And I said, Scott, I got here on the same day you did. 
I don't know him. I've never been to this village. You came over with me on the flight from America. Mm -hmm. Do you see any cell phone towers or phone lines? Does he look like he has access to a phone? <laughs> Do I look like I speak Dari? Yeah. The kid wants your pen. Give him your pen. And so Scott took out his pen and he handed it to the kid and it was like he was ringing the invisible bell that only <laughs> Afghan children can hear. <laughs> it was the scrum of both boys and girls. And that's what I found so remarkable. Because there's a point at which women in Afghanistan, they hit puberty and they basically become sheltered. They're brought back into the household where they actually rule. They run the household, mm -hmm. but they don't. you never really see them after they've hit puberty. But these girls, all prepubescent, are running up and they're punching the boys. They're knocking them out of the way. They're throwing them down. They're far more, I mean, they're run, I mean, they're very much like, this is the chance to go to school. Because most American kids, I, mean, I was one of them, didn't want to go to school, right? You want to stay in, you play with your friends outdoors. Who wants to sit around to, you know, algebra today, right? These kids want. They're desperate. They're desperate for an education. They understand it's their means of social mobility. And in that culture, that's tremendously important. Janice was responsible for basically having his income cover the entire of his, entirety of his family, mm -hmm. his extended family's existence. He took mm -hmm. care of all his nieces and nephews, brothers, sisters, mom, dads, uncles, aunts. I mean, he had like 40, 50 people that his salary went towards supporting. These kids realize that's their future responsibility is to take care of mom and dad and everyone around you. And literacy is the means to do it. That's their motivation. My motivation is I realized that if I could help create a generation of literate Afghan women, even if I could only get them into an Afghan government-run school for a couple of years, if I could just get that base ability of literacy where they could start to be able to access the marketplace of ideas for themselves, critically think for themselves, learn on their own capability or their, you know, their, or their own volition, I can potentially prevent today's children from becoming tomorrow's Taliban. And so that's why education, particularly women's education, is the key. Now, it's interesting that you said the war on terror. I hate that phrase. <laughs> it, it, you can't have a war on a tool. Terrorism's a tool. It's a tool of the desperate. It's like saying we're going to have a war on shoes. Mm -hmm. I'll just go pick up sandals or boots. If you, I mean, they can't ban a tool. What you have to fight, and we learned this at one point right after World War II, is the ideology of something, the ideology that inspires someone to pick up and, and choose terrorism as their means of achieving their objective. Um, you know, Kennan, the U.S. ambassador in Moscow after World War II, writes in his long telegram, you know, as the Truman administration is debating whether or not they should go and preemptively attack the Soviet Union with atomic weapons, Kennan writes in the long telegram, communism has sown the seeds of its own destruction. Essentially, give it time and it will prevent it from expanding and it'll, it'll putter out on its own. He also is probably writing a little bit in self-interest because he'll be on the receiving end of the blast. Mm -hmm. and he probably wants some self-preservation. But we haven't had a Kennan in our generation. Our president, after the attacks of 9-11, rather than standing up and saying, this is a generational struggle. And it's, success in this struggle is not going to be defined by taking Berlin or somebody's capital. It's going to be defined something that's far more f difficult to achieve and is going to take a tremendous investment, not only necessarily our, our military forces, but also our, our economic and our ideas. We need to become better stewards and ambassadors to the world and better representatives of what inspires us to be Americans. He told us to go shopping. But imagine if he had stood up and said, the definition of success in this conflict is the day that Osama bin Laden's children choose not to repeat the sins of their father. That's what we should be trying to achieve. And it's extremely difficult. Mm. But I challenge anyone to put American, and it's not just American, it's universal concepts and beliefs of freedom, of liberty, of a betterment of mankind. You know, I think as a, as a father now, it's my responsibility as a, as a citizen of this country and as a citizen of this planet to leave it better than I found it. 
if that was the idea that we we're all working towards, I think we'd be in a far better off place as a species. We'd live on a far better planet. And I also think that the types of ideologies that are espoused by the Taliban and Al-Qaeda would not be able to survive. It would, they'd, they'd putter out and they'd fester because they'd be reduced to the margins. They, wouldn't, they don't offer anything. The Taliban don't build schools or roads or anything like that. They just destroy they destroy, they destroy. They do provide some effective government governance, and that was another lesson learned from being over there is that they actually out-govern the Afghan government in some places. <laughs> but really the case. That's, that's, it, it comes down to the importance of educating women, and it's not just in Afghanistan. That's universal. It's really interesting, and I think that you know, in some cases the U.S. didn't really understand terrorism yeah. uh, at the time. But thinking about literacy and the lessons learned from Afghanistan, it also just happens that yesterday was the 10th anniversary of the first bombings in the second war in Iraq. And you've written before that you wonder what the war in Afghanistan would have been like if the war in Iraq had never happened. And then you also feel very strongly that the war in Iraq is not like the war in Afghanistan. Correct. You've you know, it's like comparing apples to goat, you've said. Mm -hmm. So uh, could you expand a little bit on that? Sure. Um, so uh, the talk I've been giving at, at these schools is it's called How We Lost the War mm -hmm. We Won. And what I right. argue is that by 2005, the Taliban as a military force could not effectively challenge our uh, monopoly of violence in Afghanistan. They could carry out the, the large-scale attack here or there to make international headlines, but they weren't effectively challenging the, the ability of the American and, and allied militaries to effectively seek, secure the country. The other thing that they weren't doing is they weren't challenging the rule of the Afghan state. They were very, the shadow government that now exists was very much not even imminent. It was in its, maybe in concept back in their safe havens in Pakistan, but it wasn't being executed. And yet by 2008, three years later, we found ourselves very much ill-prepared when I arrived in country to face the level of intensity and, and conflict and the outright campaign by the Taliban to out-govern the Afghan government, to win back the hearts and minds of the Afghan people by offering better services, a more responsive uh, leadership to its constituency. I mean, they, they learned a lot about their mistakes when they've been in power in the past, and they were trying to mitigate some of them. We weren't prepared for that. We didn't expect it. And that's why now, sitting here in 2013, we're withdrawing from Afghanistan, essentially leaving it to how it probably was in the late 80s when the Soviets left, with a puppet government that'll be out of Kabul, that'll peter along for a while, and a generation of warlords that we have yet to identify amongst the army and police that we've trained that will one day come to fight amongst each other and probably a reconstituted Taliban force that'll exist primarily in the south and southeastern parts of the country, and they'll, they'll unfortunately, I think, fight a civil war over it. I'd like to remain optimistic and say that if we hadn't gone to a war, an unnecessary war, an illegal war, in Iraq in 2003, that that would have, I don't think that would have happened in Afghanistan. Here's why. Um, in 2003, we, you know, we started the preemptive attacks in, in Iraq, and you know, Don Rumsfeld and, and, and Dick Cheney and, and Paul Wolfowitz, and I, I really blame Paul Wolfowitz in this one, because <laughs> Paul Wolfowitz was the architect behind the force structure of going to war. I've always said that Secretary Shinseki, he was now the head of the VA, was the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs at the time. And he was asked by, I think, the Senate Armed Services Committee in testimony leading up to the, the invasion, how many troops did he think it would actually take to secure the Iraqi population? And he gave an answer of anywhere from you know, 350,000 to a million, which was not the, the party line in the Bush administration. Mm -hmm. And the next day, Wolfowitz announced that his successor, two years in advance of his retirement, they effectively fired him. 
and Shinsaki always thought she'd write a book called I Told You So mm-hmm. because Wolfowitz <laughs> was arguing for a force structure of no more than 90,000 to 300,000 and a very minimal security presence after the initial conflict. And they were also responsible for, you know, Wolfowitz and others for getting rid of the Iraqi military, firing the Iraqi army. Mm-hmm. The Sunnis. Yeah. So the, I, when Iraq became the, the quagmire and then the rapid, you know, escalation from insurgencies to outright civil war that it became, all of the resources that were it, it focused on Afghanistan got shifted. And Afghanistan became the forgotten war because it was... It was Peaceful. It wasn't violent like Iraq. It wasn't spiraling out of control. And when I'm not just talking about guys who shoot bullets and and gals who fight fly, you know fighter jets and helicopters because there's many women who serve in combat and thankfully in the future there's going to be many women who serve with right along guys like me in the infantry. What I'm talking about are the the intelligence specialists who are your eyes and ears on the ground who might have been able to realize hey the Taliban are starting to reconstitute. The resupply convoys that, you know, when you want to push out and actually get out to these villages, you need your aid to go with you to start making good impressions and rebuilding their lives. Mm-hmm. All of that went away. It went to Iraq. The medevac capability, the helicopter. Afghanistan is not Iraq. It's not developed. There aren't highways like there are in Iraq, and it's not a literate population. It's very much a fourth or fifth world country. It's an insult to the third world to call it third world. It's mm-hmm. very, very poor. <laughs> You need helicopters in a lot of these places to get from just point A to point B. And all those helicopters went to Iraq. And so by 2008, when we landed in Afghanistan uh, on April 13th, on April 14th, 2008, the major general in charge of our task force sat all of my soldiers and I down in a, in a, a dining hall in Kabul. And he said, gentlemen, I apologize, there, there are no ladies in our unit. He said, gentlemen, uh, how many of you have been to Iraq? And half of them's hands went up. And he said, I want you to understand something right now. Iraq is not Afghanistan. In Iraq, we do everything we must to win. Here, we're doing everything we can. So for those of you who are used to the average time of flight of a medevac, the helicopter that comes and it's basically an air ambulance that comes and picks you up after you've been injured, in Iraq at that point, it was, it, the average time of flight was about 15 minutes from when you first called it. It was able to you know, pick, take off and land at your position on average within 15 minutes, if not sooner. If you've been in combat, if anyone's been in combat, they'll know that 20 minutes... If you're waiting 20 minutes to get to be in front of a surgeon, you'll likely die. Um, you'll bleed out. And the average time of flight in Afghanistan was anywhere from one to three, one to two to three hours. Mm-hmm. The average time of response for a quick reaction force, the cavalry coming to save you on the ground in Iraq, was around 12 minutes at that point. For us, it was anywhere from four to six hours. I experienced that firsthand. Right, that's what I was going to say, yeah. We were so ill-equipped to do our job, and we were, there was no backup coming that we were extraordinarily vulnerable. And I, and I went over to train the Afghan army and police, and I spent more of my, my time just basically surviving mm-hmm. and not doing a lot of training. That has profound ramifications going forward for the future, because I don't think we're leaving Afghanistan in a way where it's, it's, it's stable enough, particularly the security forces, to counter a reconstituted Taliban threat. And at this point, the American people have lost the political patience for the war, and so we're leaving because we're a democracy, mm-hmm. and when the people say it's done, we're done, we're leaving at a, at a point in which we're going to actually leave Afghanistan probably worse off than we intended to. I wouldn't, it's better off than we found it. We've educated a lot of women. We've built up a lot of infrastructure. We actually have done some pretty interesting, wonderful things for some people, but it's not what we wanted to at the end when we first set our you know, first boots on the ground right after the 9-11 attacks. And I really think the other thing is that Iraq, and this was the other unseen facet of Iraq, was that when I was trained to go to war, everyone training me 
was from Iraq. They had never been to Afghanistan. Mm. And so they would yeah. constantly tell us, okay, today's training is how, you know, the bad guys use roadside bombs in Iraq. And they'd go to write on like a whiteboard and when they turn around, all of our hands were up. And military protocol dictates you answer the highest ranking person's questions first. So they'd inevitably find our colonel. We'd all put our hands down because mm-hmm. we knew what he was going to say. And he'd look at the soldier and he'd say, Sergeant, we're not going to Iraq, we're going to Afghanistan. And the sergeant would then get this deer in the headlights look and they'd say well sir I've, I've never been to Afghanistan but I can only assume it's exactly like Iraq so we're just going to drive on with training at Fort Riley which is where I was trained out of in Kansas in 2008 from January to April four months I spent four months trying to find a map of Afghanistan it took me till the last week of our training session I found one it was hanging up in a broom closet I'm not kidding in around in a broom closet. <laughs> and everyone Use going to clean up the floors. <laughs> everyone going through that training class was going to Afghanistan. No one was going to Iraq. But every time we did training exercises, we it was all okay, you're in this operation in Baghdad or you're in the Sunni tribe. None of it was not in any way useful whatsoever. But that was because we had neutered our experience and our presence to such an extent in Afghanistan that we had no institutional lessons learned, history, or capability to prepare us if we had to go back in in a level that we weren't expecting to, which is exactly what ended up happening. That's interesting. And I just wonder if the war in Iraq hadn't happened, then you know, what kind of historical experiences would they be teaching from? I would want to, I would think, I don't know, Vietnam or... I don't think it, or Afghanistan would have become, turned out anything. A lot of people try to compare the two. And there are some obviously similar lessons learned, but from a, from a fighting standpoint, this is far different, far, far different. The Taliban truly have a base of operations inside Pakistan that we really can't heavily bomb like we did with the, the North Vietnamese. The, the terrain is totally different than the jungle warfare of Asia. The type of intensity of conflict is different. We now ride around in very heavily armored vehicles. I think in Vietnam they were walking around in rice paddies, which is probably why their casualty rate was so much higher. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's actually, if there's any benefit to come from these, the, these two wars, it's the actual progression and development of emergency trauma medicine. That is going to have a tremendous impact on the survivability rates now of American civilians because of how well trained an entire generation of doctors and nurses are now dealing with traumatic injury. And I'm not just talking about traumatic brain injury. I'm talking about losses of limbs, horrific and horrible bleeding. You've seen just a rapid development in the technology and, and health capabilities of being able to save the lives of people who normally never would have survived mm-hmm. that, that, that type of injury. But there's also then another effect of that, which we're going to really need to focus on and deal with as a country, which is that once these people survive, they have to be taken care of and they have to be cared for. Mm -hmm. And there's tremendous health care costs associated with that, and we're not even thinking about that, that effect. I've heard statistics that one out of every four veterans comes back with PTSD or TBI. I have PTSD and TBI, and I can only imagine what I go through. It's, to me, it's, it's horrible. You know, all my there's so many of my brothers and sisters who aren't admitting to this and seeking the help mm-hmm. that they need to, and I, I would hope that they go out and get it. But we, as the American people, also need to stand up and say, yes, we owe you an an, un, an uncalculable debt of gratitude and thanks for standing up and doing what you need to do on behalf of our country. And our responsibility as citizens is to take care of you for the rest of your lives as as a payment for that debt. I mean, people always say, you know, it's wonderful when people walk up and say, hey, thank you for your service. I really don't know what to say. I'd far better 
like it if they went and wrote their congressman or their senator and demanded that the VA be actually fully funded mm -hmm. and reformed to actually take care of, of disabled veterans. Right. There was just an article in the New York <laughs> Times uh, this week about a VA hospital in Mississippi that was just all this information coming about about it being horribly mismanaged and problems with sterilization, problems with radiologists who wasn't uh, who was trying to make more money by seeing more patients, not giving them the right results. So it seems like it's a tremendous problem. Yeah, when I went for my first, uh, when I I spent two years self-medicating through alcohol before I finally. Which it seems is a common thing. Yeah, and yeah, just yeah. Based on no, people I've met, I, I have friends right now. I mean, I'm, I have a dear friend of mine right now who is an Iraq and Afghan war vet, and I watch him almost on a nightly basis down half a bottle of bourbon because mm -hmm. he's self medicating, and he, he won't listen. When I finally mustered up the courage to admit I had an issue and I needed to talk to somebody about it, and I went to the VA, I sat down with this psychologist and I started telling mm -hmm. him about what I, I... I found it very hard to open up to a complete stranger. And actually writing, it turns out, was probably the best thing I did. Writing this mm -hmm. book was right. really... It was a form of therapy because I, I got to be comfortable with talking about my experience. And once I had sort of worked up the internal courage to share it with strangers, mm. I figured, well, okay, if I can, it's going to be in writing, I might as well start talking about it to somebody as well. So I went and saw this doctor, and I remember sitting there talking to him and thinking, oh, I want to just talk this out. And then at the end of telling him all the things that I had been through, if you want to learn more, you can buy mm -hmm. the book. Right, Watches Without Time, yeah. the American Soldier in Afghanistan. Exactly. I, uh, I said to the guy, okay, so what do we do now? And he says, well, what, what do you want? I said, I, I, I want to talk to somebody. He goes, oh, I'm not the guy you talk to. I'm the guy who gives you pills. So what pills do you want? I said, I don't want pills. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not chemically imbalanced right. anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean I, I'm, not, you know, I'm not drinking or anything like that. I'm, 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 I just want to talk to somebody about these experiences. I was drinking because I've had the same nightmare for every day since I've been back from the war. And I, I still have the same damn nightmare, but I need to talk to somebody about it. And he said, well, I'm the guy who gives you pills. So what pills do you want? I said, I don't want pills. I want to talk to somebody. We went back and forth. Finally. He goes, right. if you want to talk to somebody, here's the person you go see. And I've been thankfully seeing that person now for two years. And she's helped me tremendously. But if that's the first thing that people are experiencing when they walk in the VA is that you, you see the guy yeah. who says, well, here are the pills I give you, mm -hmm. and they don't, and they actually try to dissuade you from going and talking to the person. Right, and it's already taken a tremendous amount of courage to walk through that door. And I read, you know, it's interesting. I read a, an article about a, a rock war vet who was disabled, PTSD, TBI. He gets back from the war. He has the same experience. He, a, lot of these, you know, a lot of us as veterans, I didn't know anything about mental health, right? Yeah, Thankfully, right. I had done some research ahead of time and known that they were going to, known that there's two tracks to mental health. There's there's a, a pill form and there's a cognitive behavioral form, and I wanted to talk it out, and mm -hmm. I guess that's what cognitive behavioral therapy is, and that's what I wanted. Well, there's a lot of soldiers and sailors, airmen, and marines, when they go to the, the VA to get help, they walk in, and the first person they meet is the pill person, and they don't realize that there's another track to mm -hmm. this, but that track is more expensive, it's more time-intensive, there aren't enough people that the VA can hire to do it, and there's, there's almost an institutional dissuasion of sending you down that path. It's just cheaper, and I'm putting quotes up, it's cheaper and more effective, I guess in their mind, there's a better cost benefit to it to just put you on some pills right. and, and try Get to medi medicate you down into a point of basically catharsis. So this guy is in this article, he's an Iraq war vet, TBI, PTSD, he comes home, he goes to the VA, they get him on Valium. Valium's not working, they bump it up to Clonopin. They start putting him mm. on other things. There's some, they put him on like, you know, so antipsychotics like Trazodone and stuff and all this other stuff. And Eventually, there's side effects. You know, he's starting to gain weight. He's he he's having really sexual dysfunction. He's on Zoloft and stuff. And so they start giving him you know pills to counter the negative side effects of other pills. And a couple of years go by, and he finds he's taking 100 pills a day. Wow. 
and he's miserable. He's actually more depressed now than he was when he first went to see treatment, and he tries to kill himself by swallowing his entire bottle's worth of prescription of Clonopin. Well, his mom thankfully catches him, drives him to the hospital, he gets his stomach pumped, and you know what they do when they're sending him out of the hospital? They refill his Clonopin prescription. Yeah. So yeah. he goes back home and he tries it again. Uh. And this time when he gets back to the hospital and they repump his stomach, he, he, he turns down the pills. And he says, he makes a mental, he has finally like a, a moment of mental acuity and clarity. And he says, wait a minute, I'm like this because I'm on all these pills. Maybe it's the pills that are the problem, or maybe the pills become more of a problem and a hindrance than the injuries that I suffered. Because I'm more miserable now than I was before that. So he makes a conscious decision to stop taking them all, and he does. He refuses the prescription. He goes and sees a civilian doctor. And this is the difference between the civilian doctor and the VA that is tremendous. And I think there's a lot of promise in this. Because the civilian doctor, and he's in Washington, D.C., there's a place where he can do this, says, why don't we try medical marijuana? The guy smokes five joints a day now. He doesn't take any pills. He's totally fine. Happy as he's been in years. Wow. You know, I... I, I personally, am, even the VA can't do that. They're not allowed to, to even offer that as a treatment. And there's a lot of states where even civilian doctors aren't allowed to. But I'm hoping that as we become you know, more educated about the positive benefits of, of what people consider to be an alternative form of medicine, I, I really don't care whatever, if it's yeah. art therapy or if it's smoking a joint, mm-hmm. is if it's helping somebody out, I don't think it's in any government's right to be able to tell a veteran, I'm sorry, you can't do that. Now, I'm not talking about somebody going out and shooting up heroin or smoking crack or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, to try to mentally escape. These are people who are just trying to sort of mellow. They're them. seeking out help. Yeah, they're seeking out help, and, and there's there's a growing body of, of medicinal evidence to suggest that medicinal marijuana has tremendous benefits on, on these people's livelihoods and, and recovery. Basically, what I'm trying to argue is that the VA doesn't function in the way that Abraham Lincoln intended it to when they first thought about mm-hmm. taking care of, the, of you know, survivors from, mm-hmm. from conflicts. It's not, and it probably never has functioned the way that it was intended to in the first place. Uh, but I would also argue that they need to, the focus of treatment on the VA is on the individual, which is in, it's antithetical uh, to the, the focus of training in the military. In the military, you're told the individual is important, mm-hmm. the importance of the group, the team, the mission. The individual is just a component of that. But good of the many outweigh the good of the one, right? To quote Spock from Star Trek, the same thing in the military. But then you get in the VA and they tell you, to hell with the team and the group. It's all about you. You need to get better. Mm-hmm. I haven't been important in years. Why am I mm-hmm. important now? And I'm the most depressed person on the planet. I don't feel like I'm important. Mm-hmm. You're, now you're telling me I'm important? Well, if I'm important, I can't get myself out of this funk. I must be really not important or I must be even more of a failure. And it's just a, it's a never-ending cycle of further and further depression. What the VA ought to do, and I've learned this through a charity I work with in, called Oasis Adaptive Sports. There, it started by a Vietnam vet. He's like, this doesn't work. He went through the VA and said, this doesn't work. We've got to focus on these guys and make them part of a team. And so what he did was he, he started this concept. He takes disabled vets, PTSD, even people missing limbs and stuff, TBI, whatever. And he, uh, he, teaches, he started off teaching them to ski. And now it's expanded to horseback riding, archery, tennis, sailing, mm-hmm. all different bowling, different sorts mm-hmm. of sports. And instead of focusing on the individual, like if you and I were there and you're my ski instructor and I'm going to be taught how to ski, mm-hmm. we're Team Matt. Mm-hmm. And the only way Team Matt wins <laughs> is if I learn how to ski. And so while you're thinking, well, from my perspective, I'm just learning how to ski. But actually what we found is it helps them to reemerge. 
because mm -hmm. they suddenly have a goal they're working towards. It's mm -hmm. a common goal. I don't want to let you down. We're Team Matt. I mean, mm -hmm. It's named after me, but we're Team Matt. And Team Matt wins if, we, if I learn how to ski down the hill. Mm -hmm. And I, I start coming out of my shell. I start talking. I might even start... It, it, the, the, the way that this works best is when the, the instructor is a veteran themselves. Right, because right. then I might start talking about my experience. And as I open up more and more and more, I become focused more and more and more on actual growth and recovery. And what we found universally is every person that comes through our program, by the end of it, wants to be an instructor themselves. And then they really become part mm -hmm. of the team because then we train them to help others. They realize mm -hmm. how much growth they've had in just one ski season, just one winter, or one you know sailing season, one summer, mm -hmm. that they realize, wow, if I can come that far in just a couple of months, imagine how I can help others. That's how the VA should be approaching it. It should be a team dynamic. And they do. They're starting to now with their group cognitive behavioral therapies where they, you know, they get Iraq and Afghan war vets together to talk about their shared experience. But I go to a bunch of them and it's too few attended. Mm -hmm. It's too, there's just, it's like, you know, 10, 20 people and it's the same 10, 20 people every time. I know there's a huge population of war vets that aren't coming to these things mm -hmm. and they should be and they need to. Mm -hmm. Well, sounds like it's an interesting discussion I feel like we could keep having, though I have to be sensitive to the fact that Matt is actually about to go to a panel in Charlottesville as part of the Virginia Festival of the Book to speak about PTSD. So hopefully uh, some of our listeners will actually be able to have attended that. But stay tuned for more from Matt. And, of course, if you are interested in learning about more of Matt's experiences and his insights on Afghanistan, pick up a copy of Watches Without Time, An American Soldier in Afghanistan. Thanks for talking with us today, Matt. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. What an interesting conversation with Matt Seller. If you are interested in reading more about his experiences in Afghanistan, as well as his main takeaways from the war, then please consider purchasing a copy of Watches Without Time, An American Soldier in Afghanistan. Also, for more information on this book, as well as our other titles, events, and podcasts, please visit our website at www.justworldbooks.com. Thank you, and we hope you tune in next time.